Welcome to Mexico Unexplained, where we will explore the magic, the mysteries, and the miracles of Mexico. This series presents information based partly on theory and conjecture. The podcaster's purpose is to suggest some possible explanation, but not necessarily the only ones to the subjects we will examine. Here is your host, Robert Bitto. Welcome, and muy bienvenidos to episode number 183 of Mexico Unexplained where we examine the magic, the mysteries, and the miracles of Mexico. I'm your host, Robert Bitto. The date was January 28, 1917, and the time was approximately 7.30 in the morning. It was a typical day for Carmelita Torres, a 17-year-old Mexican maid who cleaned houses in El Paso. Carmelita was using the trolley to cross over the Mexican border via the Santa Fe Bridge, as she did every morning. This day, however, when a U.S. Customs official boarded the electric streetcar and asked her to get off, the young Mexican maid refused. Carmelita had had enough. She was tired of submitting herself to the humiliation of the de-lousing process that had become part of her daily routine to enter the U.S. At the time, all Mexicans entering the United States across the southern border were subjected to this. Men and women were separated into different buildings at the inspection station. Any children present would accompany the women. In these buildings, the customs officials had the Mexicans take off all their clothes and remove all valuables. Clothes and other articles were steamed, and those items that might have been damaged by the steam were exposed to a type of cyanide gas. The officers conducting these strip searches then examined the nude persons for lice. If they found any lice on men, all their hair was cut off and the clippings were burned. If any lice were found on women, the women's hair was doused with a mixture of kerosene and vinegar and then wrapped in a towel. Infected women then had to wait 30 minutes until customs officials could conduct a secondary inspection. If any live lice were found after that, the process was repeated. Once people passed the lice inspection, their naked bodies were sprayed with a liquid made of a combination of soap and gasoline. After gathering their belongings and dressing, the Mexicans were vaccinated and given a certificate stating that they had completed the procedure. The certificates were only valid for one week. Rumors circulated among the female border crossers that stripped-down women were being secretly photographed by U.S. Customs officials, and those naked photos were being sold and shared in El Paso bars and cantinas across the border in Ciudad Juarez. There was also some legitimate fear among crossers because of what happened the year before in an El Paso prison. 28 inmates died in the gasoline de-lousing baths when a cigarette ignited bathers. The auburn-haired and resolute Carmelita Torres would not subject herself again to another humiliating disinfecting procedure. When she refused to get off the bus, she was told to go back across the border to Mexico. She asked if she could get a refund for the trolley ride. The trolley conductor told her no. Carmelita refused to move. What brought the young Mexican maid to that point? What was behind the whole undignified process at the U.S.-Mexico border? The story begins with fears of a typhus epidemic spreading into the United States from Mexico. 
During the times of the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s or the teens, with much unrest in Mexico, there also came disease and rumors of disease. Typhus had spread from Mexico City to other parts of the country between 1915 and 1917. In the year 1916, over 20 cases of typhus were reported in El Paso, with three deaths. Thomas Calloway Lee, the new mayor of El Paso at the time, promised to clean up the city, and he did not just mean getting rid of the ring of dirty and corrupt politicians led by Irish political boss Charles Kelly and his Mexican supporters on both sides of the border. Mayor Lee wanted to do something about the, quote, dirty, lousy, destitute Mexicans, unquote, that he claimed were a scourge on his city. One of his first acts as mayor was to demolish hundreds of adobe homes in the Chihuahuita neighborhood of El Paso. Mayor Lee claimed that these domiciles were germ-infested. He accomplished this task of raising the homes with the help of the troops of U.S. General John Pershing, the famous cross-border hunter of Pancho Villa. As an aside, Mayor Thomas Lee had his own Pancho Villa connection. After Villa's March 9, 1916 raid on Columbus, New Mexico, Lee proclaimed that if Pancho Villa would ever enter El Paso, he would be immediately arrested and tried for his crimes. Pancho Villa's response was to offer a bounty of a thousand pesos in gold for the head of Mayor Lee. This interesting Pancho Villa story aside, the El Paso mayor's major concern in his cleanup campaign was preventing the spread of typhus. History records in interviews now stored in the Institute of Oral History at UTEP that Tom Lee even wore silk underwear because a doctor friend of his told him that typhus lice do not stick to silk. Mayor Lee sent cables to Washington, D.C. for months in 1916 arguing for a full quarantine of all Mexicans at the border. He wanted the federal government to construct a special quarantine camp to detain all Mexican border crossers for up to 14 days to ensure they were typhus-free before letting them into the United States. Mayor Lee even wrote a letter to the American president, Woodrow Wilson, for assistance with this supposed epidemic. Cooler heads in Washington believed the El Paso mayor to be overreacting. A boots-on-the-ground public health service official stationed in El Paso, Dr. B.J. Lloyd, gave this statement to the U.S. Surgeon General at the time, Dr. Rupert Blue. Quote, Typhus fever is not now and probably never will be a serious menace to our civilian population in the United States. We probably have typhus fever in many of our large cities now. I am opposed to the idea of quarantine camps at the border for the reason that the game is not worth the candle. End quote. Dr. Lloyd played a role as intermediary and somewhat diplomatically suggested setting up delousing facilities instead of quarantine camps. In a letter to his superiors, Dr. Lloyd stated that he was cheerfully willing to, quote, bathe and disinfect all the dirty, lousy people who are coming into our country from Mexico, end quote. The mayor of El Paso got less than what he wanted but the disinfecting stations at the border would have to do. He grew to accept them. Carmelita Torres did not. 
The day of Carmelita's refusal to get off the trolley, January 28, 1917, would mark the beginning of drastic changes affecting the U.S.-Mexico border. The principled young maid sat there on the bus and became angry and vocal. She convinced 30 other women, also housekeepers like her, to refuse the delousing disease inspection process. Within an hour, more than 200 Mexican women joined Carmelita and blocked all traffic into El Paso from Mexico on the Santa Fe Bridge. By noon, the numbers of protesters swelled to an estimate of several thousand, according to the Texas press. After shutting down the border for hours, the group marched to the disinfection buildings and tried to get other Mexicans to stop submitting themselves to this humiliating delousing process. U.S. immigration and health officials tried to disperse the crowd, but the protesters became violent and hurled rocks and bottles at the Americans. Although some customs officials sustained minor injuries, the growing mob caused greater concern. The rioters not only worried government workers at the border, but as word about the riot spread throughout the city, El Paso citizens demanded that more be done. General Bell, the commander of Fort Bliss, ordered his soldiers to confront the thousands of angry people. The soldiers were pelted with rocks and jeered at. Carmelita Torres was in the center of the fray, as were the original women from the trolley. Newspapers referred to them as the Amazons. There was no indication that the thousands of protesters were going to back down. Some of the stories of what happened next are very detailed in press accounts. A group of riders lay down on the trolley tracks while another group took over the trolleys themselves. A reporter on the scene noted that three Mexican maids threw out the trolley conductor and tried to cling to him to prevent him from escaping. One of the women gave him a black eye. Another trolley conductor fled across the border, pursued by a small group of women, and hid out in a Chinese restaurant on Avenida Juarez until the coast was clear. The Mexican consul general in El Paso, Andres Garcia, tried to meet with protesters in the middle of the bridge, but the mob surrounded his car and prevented it from moving. Garcia quieted the rioters for a brief time, but by the end of the afternoon, hundreds more joined in the struggle. Rioting continued the next day, January 29th, and by then most of the demonstrators were men. Many joined the riots because they saw it as an opportunity to protest the regime of Mexican President Venustiano Carranza. The Mexican Revolution was still in their minds, and many in the north of Mexico had supported Pancho Villa over Carranza. The Mexican authorities recognized the anti-Carranza elements in the protests as severe threats, and Ciudad Juarez chief of police, Maximo Torres, gave the order that all rioters were to be arrested. A Mexican general loyal to the Carranza regime named Francisco Murguia led his cavalry to try to quell the riot. General Murguia's troops with their skull and crossbones insignia, were known as El Escuadrón de la Muerte, or in English, the Squadron of Death. The protesters refused to be intimidated, even with the Mexican cavalry brandishing their sabers, and continued to hurl rocks and insults at authority. The conflict intensified, and rumors circulated that one of the female protesters had been shot. 
The Ciudad Juarez chief of police denied this. By this second day, business owners and households on the El Paso side began to feel the impact of the protests as they were lacking labor. They asked the El Paso Chamber of Commerce to resolve the issue. The protests had inspired others on the Mexican side not directly involved in the riots to stay home and not cross the border to come to work. El Paso was starting to feel the consequences of Mayor Lee's need to clean up the city. The riots continued on January 30th, and that's when formal arrests began. One woman and two men were taken into custody on the American side for attacking a customs official and a U.S. Army infantryman. Protests sprung up spontaneously in Ciudad Juarez, but the sentiments of the disgruntled Mexicans were divided among support for the women, support for Pancho Villa, and a general condemnation of the United States. Local police made arrests. The riots ended on both sides of the border when U.S. officials waived some of the bath requirements, notably by accepting certificates from Mexican doctors declaring border crossers free of typhus. It was ultimately up to the discretion of the American border agents to make the final determination on whether the person crossing was okay to be admitted to the U.S. or if they needed a bath despite their Mexican paperwork. Some scholars who studied the 1917 bath riots claim that Carmelita Torres was the Latina Rosa Parks. Although heroic, this young maid's actions at the border and the protests she inspired did little to change things. In fact, the entrance requirements became more severe and never went back to pre-Mayor Lee days when entering the U.S. was relatively easy. The Immigration Act of 1917, passed just days after the riots, imposed taxes on people entering the U.S. from Mexico and forced Mexican workers to take literacy tests. The new law also prohibited Mexicans from performing contract labor. Business owners throughout the American Southwest petitioned Congress to exempt Mexicans from paying the tax. This was eventually lifted after the U.S. entered World War I and the need for Mexican labor was high. The forced baths and fumigation, which used DDT and Zyklon B, lasted until the 1950s. What started with one man's fear of a possible pandemic had long-lasting effects and helped forge later policies of increased government control at the southern U.S. border. And whatever became of Carmelita Torres, this woman whom the newspapers once dubbed the red-haired Amazon, seems to be lost to history. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of Mexico Unexplained. Remember to like and subscribe to us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter. Tell your friends by sharing these shows with others. Please go to our website, MexicoUnexplained.com, for references, illustrations, and for free access to transcripts of past shows. Please visit Amazon.com to purchase the books, Mexico Unexplained and Mexican Monsters, to get hard copies of the magic, the mysteries, and the miracles of Mexico. We appreciate your kind attention once again. Until next time, thank you and gracias. Thank you for listening to another episode of Mexico Unexplained with host Robert Bitto. For show summary, relevant links and commentary, please check out our website at MexicoUnexplained.com. Like us on Facebook and be a part of the conversation. Adios and hasta la vista.